you have a copy of God's Word, could you turn to Luke 19, Luke chapter 19, this evening, as we continue in our study of Luke's Gospel. You know, uh, there's no excuse for Americans to, to get married, and really, when you compare it to what happens if you're in Northern Ireland, uh, when you get married in Northern Ireland, <laughs> your friends and those that love you have a funny way of showing their affection. And I know there's a little bit of that that goes on here. Let's just say it's ramped up to a different degree over there. And some of the things that happen to, sometimes the bride as well, but certainly the groom. And uh, it's a, they're always told it's a sign of affection. So when you get kind of beaten up and thrown with things, and let's put it this way, I, I had to fight for about... I think about 45 minutes, maybe about eight men wrestling with me for about 45 minutes in my place of employment before I finally exhausted, and uh, they then uh, did whatever they were putting on me and all the rest of it. Then they uh, cable-tied me and put me on a pallet, a wooden pallet, and then shrink-wrapped me on that pallet, and then took me on a, a fork truck out of the building and down the lane and left me beside, at the side of the road in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. And then they went home and left me there. <laughs> so it just so happened that a, a member of the church that I attended and was a, a member of at that time lived down that direction. So after some time had passed, he's driving, <laughs> he's driving past and thankfully notices that... Uh, he was like the, the good Samaritan and saw me half dead on the side of the road and I came to my rescue. So that's just a, a little bit of an insight of what happened. And uh, of course I had, you know what's coming, you know what's coming. And I had, was planning to, uh, I thought to myself, well, if I work to Friday, they're going to hit me on Friday. And then I thought, well, they might think of that. They might think I'm going to leave uh, like, I'm not going to turn up for work on Friday. So I thought, I'll not come in on Thursday either. I'll just not come into work on Thursday or Friday. But they got me on Wednesday. So <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were making sure <laughs> I was going nowhere. Anyway, it's all in good fun. Sometimes it goes a little overboard. But, uh, yeah, interesting how we show our affection in Northern Ireland. Anyway, with all that nonsense out of the way, we turn to Luke 19, where we come to a, a sober portion again. Luke 19, we're going to read from verse 41. If you've not been with us, we've seen the triumphal entry of Christ, His approach on to Jerusalem at least, as uh, people gather around Him and sing Hosanna and we come to verse 41. Let us read the word of God. Luke 19, 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, 
at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple, and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Amen. And the Lord bless the public reading of his word. This is the very word of God. Receive it into your heart by faith, beloved. Let's pray. Our God, we come before Thee, and we thank Thee for Thy mercy. We thank Thee that we have a Father in heaven, one that we can call our Father. We bless Thee that that is not an inappropriate designation, for Thou dost care for us in ways seen and unseen. God, continue to hear our prayers as we bear our burdens every day. We come to a Father. We come to one who does look upon us in tenderness. And we pray that each of thy people here will learn to cast all their cares upon thee. O God, please be with us as we look at thy word. Give us the message, a message from God. Thou knowest our thoughts and our meditation and study and preparation, but we pray for a message from God. And again, from the youngest to the eldest, may we all hear what thou art saying, make thy word live then, and extend thy kingdom in the salvation of souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, it has been an experience on a number of occasions to me whereby I have, without any planning, without any intention or control over the matter, found that what I preach in the morning and in the evening is almost the same sermon. That the emphasis of it, or certainly truths found in the passage, are overlapping, and today is such a day. For those who are here this morning, we you you know that we looked at that difficult passage in Hebrews six. For those who were not here, uh, I can just commend to you studying Hebrews six and especially verses seven and eight, which was the focus of our study this morning. We saw there an impassioned apostolic appeal by Paul where he is giving the warning of what happens when people don't rightly respond to the Word of God. Those who reject the gospel of Christ, there is a line that can be crossed that can bring you to a point where there's no recovery. Now, it is the Lord Himself who designates that line. We don't designate it. By our actions, of course, we cross it, but it is He that designates that line, not us. And tonight we find not an apostle, but the Master Himself, the Lord Jesus, essentially, at least in part, doing the same thing. He stands before a people who have crossed the line. And because of that, there is imminent doom to the city. 
As I read over these verses, I was moved by our Lord Jesus in His humanity, seeing God in flesh weep as He does here in this passage, being moved to tears, just thinking about the scene of what it takes to bring God in flesh to tears. It's quite a scene. And as we look at it, really, and I'm trying to deal with all of the verses here and pull them together under one theme, the title I gave to the message then is The Heart of Christ for Sinners. The Heart of Christ for Sinners. Our focus throughout this gospel has been to consider the Lord Jesus, to see Him. Often when you go through the Gospels, you can, you can focus on other aspects. You can, you can give attention to the other characters who come into view. You can focus in on blind Bartimaeus. You can focus in on others that he comes into contact with and, and extrapolate or build out the message from their perspective. But every single week, I, I endeavor, by and large, to come and focus, what is this telling me about Christ? Now, in the passage preceding, we saw him as king coming to Jerusalem, riding upon the colt. And we saw him in this scene that signifies the glory of his kingship and his rule, the people praising him and celebrating him. But now we see him coming in a fashion as a prophet. We're seeing the prophetic ministry of the Lord Jesus. So as we look at this passage, I want you to note with me, first of all, his tears. His tears from verse 41 through 44. As I mentioned, the preceding passage shows to us Christ as king. And what we have in the remainder is Christ as prophet. And I couldn't help even in thinking about that and musing upon that in my study, how that the sections we're looking at tonight divide up into two kinds of prophets. In verse 41 through 44, we see the, the, the heart of the, the Jeremiah-type prophet, the one who is the weeping prophet, the one of whom it says, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. You see this with Christ, verse 41. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. His eye affected his heart, just as Jeremiah stated. But in the remaining portion, the remainder of the verses, we see more of the Elijah-type prophet. You see this tenacious, bold, courageous man who stands, and despite things that should bring fear to others, he comes in and just states matter-of-factly the truth without, as I say, any fear at all. This is our Lord Jesus. You can't, he cannot be seen or encapsulated just by looking at Elijah, nor can he be encapsulated simply by looking at Isaiah or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or any of the prophets. It is by looking at the whole gamut of the prophets given to us we get some inkling into the spectrum of ministry of the Son of God. But even there, it is an imperfect picture. It is to look at this passage and see something of what Jeremiah was moved by the Spirit of Christ to be like. But even Jeremiah did not have a heart like the Son of God. Only three times do we find Jesus weeping in the New Testament account. You mull over in your mind and start thinking about those occasions. They all come really in quick succession. We have, first of all, his weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. There he wept. Really, a few days later, we have him then 
weeping over Jerusalem, as in the passage before us. And then again, just a couple of days or so later, we have a weeping in Gethsemane. As I thought about that, I thought about him weeping amidst the scene of physical death at Lazarus' tomb, and then amidst the scene of spiritual death over the city of Jerusalem, and then in Gethsemane amidst the sense of his own mediatorial battle with death on behalf of his people. Really what moves Christ to tears is the curse. Wherever you see him weeping, on the occasions where it's noted that he sobbed, it is because of the curse. And it's the same thing that brings us to tears, isn't it? We're no different. We understand the scene of John 11, looking at that depiction of Christ standing outside the tomb of one that he loved and weeping. We've shed our own tears over the death of loved ones. We've shed our own tears because of our heart for other people. We also understand the scene that is here to some degree, looking at the spiritual condition of Jerusalem being lost, being under this sense of of the judgment of God, he is weeping. We have felt that at times. We have felt it about lost children. We have sat around our dinner tables doing family worship, and at times, at times we've been moved as we begin to pray for our children and name them before God that they might have their eyes open and their hearts changed. Tears have come to our eyes. We have felt it towards others that we come into contact with, that God, in an unusual way, begins to press upon our souls a love, an affection, more than is usual, toward a particular individual. We begin to sob as we name them before God in prayer. We don't really know anything of the sobbing of Gethsemane, though. That's something else entirely. As you picture the scene, as you read verse 41, don't pass over it glibly. When he was come near, he beheld the city. He's scanning over, looking down on the city, He weeps over it. The language there is very vivid. This is not a tear coming to his eye. This is heaving with sobs. And I want you to remember, everyone's singing. People are singing their hosannas. They're quoting Scripture. They're rejoicing in all the celebration as they anticipate that the King has come. And you have this tragic irony in which the Son of God, in the midst of all the celebrations of the masses, he begins to heave in his soul and weep profusely. A grown man, broken, sobbing. His head naturally bowing, and yet looking up, raising it, with the tears streaming down his face. Sobbing over Jerusalem. It is a classic example of the path of the prophet. When others are rejoicing, the prophet finds himself weeping. When others are celebrating, he is lamenting. Few understand the heart of such creatures that God puts into the world. The prophet. Few see as he sees or feels, feel as he feels, 
when others get accustomed to the idea that souls perish, the prophet rents his garment and weeps before God. Christ very literally bursts into tears. He bursts into tears. It is comforting that our Lord Jesus did on occasion the things that we sometimes find ourselves doing, bursting into tears. And for those of you who are shy with regard to weeping, you're always trying to suppress your sobbing, be careful that you don't suppress something that's an actual gift from God. Our tears give words. Sometimes when we don't know how to frame what is on our heart, it is God's way that we simply sob. And in the sobbing, those prayers are framed precisely how they need to be framed. This is our Lord Jesus. But what is he weeping over? Why is he sobbing? Two primary thoughts over Jerusalem's rejection of the truth and over their desolation in the future. Over their rejection of the truth and their desolation in the future. We see their rejection of the truth in verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. There is in this the fault and the forfeiture. The extent of the fault, you see the language of verse 42. What are they doing? They don't know. That's the problem. In fact, you see a repetition of it, a repetition of, of themes. Verse 42, if you just look carefully at your Bible, saying, If thou hadst known, and then note, this thy day. Then go to verse 44, because it ends, because thou knewest not thy visitation, the time of thy visitation. There's similar themes coming, being pulled together, being pulled together. And the simple reality is that they, they didn't realize. That's what the Lord's acknowledging. They did not realize. Now, when you think of it that way, you begin then to say, well, then they have an excuse. But that's not what the Lord is saying. They didn't realize despite every evidence put before them. They didn't know, not because there was want of opportunity, but because they refused to realize. They covered their own eyes. They didn't want to see what was before them. With every miracle, with every sermon, they had an abundance of evidence with regard to what was before them. They weren't in want. And with regard to Jerusalem, some of the most marvelous Miracles of all Christ's ministry were done there or in proximity to there. You go to John, you have them in John's Gospel. You have in John 5, the man by the pool. This man has been, I think if you go back there to John 5, it's, it's 38 years he's there. 38 years. Christ comes. Take up thy bed and walk. That spread. 
people became aware. In fact, there was a whole, really, a, real, a, a ruckus that happened there because he'd said it on the, on the Sabbath day. And the leadership became very offended because he calls this man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. And it caused a swelling animosity. And again, as I've mentioned before, it's from that point that they desire to see Christ dead. You have the man who was blind from birth in John 9. Blind from birth. There at the temple. That's where he's left. He makes his way to the temple. He's always there. Everyone knows this man has been blind from birth. This is well known. And Christ comes and gives sight to him. And again, that explodes into this public awareness of, of Christ's ministry. This is all happening in Jerusalem. And then, of course, you have very close to where we are right now, you have the, the raising of Lazarus. Bethany's just two miles outside the city. News travels. Many people gathered. The family were well known. We're told specifically in John 11 that many gathered and assembled there. It was part of the fear of the disciples to, to not go there. They were afraid to go to Bethany. Because they knew that the Jews there sought to kill Christ. Thomas actually comes to the conclusion, let's all go that we may die with him. Such was the intense persecution and the hatred that filled that region. They didn't even want to go to Bethany, two miles outside. And when Lazarus was raised from the dead, that news spread. It was undeniable. A man dead four days. So Christ sees their fault. They didn't realize the day they were living in. But what did they forfeit? What did they forfeit? If thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. You see the expression, if thou hast known even thou, at least in this thy day, even though. It's like one of those expressions that comes from more passion. Lenski, in his commentary, points this out. Looking at those two words, even though, he said, brings out the full pathos of this cry that comes from Jesus' heart. And this thy day, this is your day. In other words, this is the time of Messiah. This, this, you've been looking for this day. Zechariah, back at the beginning of the gospel, recognizes with the coming of Christ, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people with the arrival of Christ. Simeon, as we mentioned already, he gazed upon the infant Messiah and knew that he saw God's salvation. And this is in his infancy. Not to mention of all the, the miracles that he performed and everything that clearly the Set him apart. This is your day, Jerusalem. This is your day. Your Christ has come. Behold your God. So what did they forfeit? Two things. Peace and sight. Peace and sight. The things which belong unto thy peace. Things which pertain to peace. 
Remember, this is Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The very name of the city emanates the idea of peace. And Jesus is saying, your peace is gone. You're forfeiting peace. You have no peace. I I started to think about that, you know, the removal of peace from the city. Why? My mind went to that which depicted for them peace, the sacrificial offerings. How did they have peace? Because God put in their charge the Word of God, the oracles of God, that showed to them how to be reconciled to God. They were, they were able to, to see that by these offerings, there was depicted for them reconciliation and peace with God. Then I thought of it just in terms of the Lord Jesus Himself, that their rejection of the mediatorial prophet, priest, and king meant that the things which make for peace could not be theirs. Think about it. They needed a priest to have peace with God. You can't have peace with God without a priest. And their priest has come. The one that all the Levitical priesthood pointed to. He has come. He has arrived. And they're rejecting him. Instead, they'd rather have the corrupt influence of Annas and Caiaphas. These men who are lining their pockets. These men who manipulate what goes on even in the temple to make themselves even more rich. These men that exact and express political influence to keep the gravy train going. Even with the animosity toward the Romans, they were quite content to keep the peace because they were getting wealthy with the way things were and they didn't want to upset anything. That's the kind of priest that they had. The Lord Jesus is God's appointed priest. He is the one who has come for them. They can't have peace with God if they reject this mediatorial priest. So it is for you. You can't have peace with God without God's appointed priest. I'm not talking about the priest of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not talking about the priest of the Orthodox Church. Not talking about even designating certain people within Protestant churches like the Anglican Episcopalian that call their ministers priests and looking to them in some way to mediate a reconciliation between you and God. They can't do it. It's peace through Christ. You go to Christ. The whole purpose of public ministry and the preaching of the Word is not to commend you to the one who stands before you, but to be a signpost that directs you to the only priest of God. Friend, that's where you need to look. Jerusalem was heading into the absence of peace with God because they rejected the only priest that matters. But they're also going to lose out in peace not only with God, but peace with their enemies. There's no peace with their enemies either. They need a king to give them peace with their enemies. And here they reject their mediatorial king. That's what they're doing. Oh, I know that they've been singing. There's been praises acknowledging him as king. But it's empty, as we shall discover. It's surface level. When it comes to the point when Christ is standing to be condemned, they will call out for his crucifixion. 
And so they want, they so want to have peace even with the surrounding territory and liberation from the Roman Empire, but they're rejecting, they end up rejecting the king who rules to give peace to his people by his rule over their enemies. And then, of course, they needed a prophet, a prophet to communicate this peace to their hearts because it's not enough that Christ establishes peace by his work as a priest or deals with enemies so that we have none to worry about as a king. He needs to communicate that. You need to be aware of that. The prophet's purpose then is to communicate the efficacy of the priest and the king's work. It's to point you to what's been accomplished. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem have no peace because they have no prophet, priest, or king. No peace. You know, some would give a king's ransom for peace. Maybe some of you here, deep down, you put on a you put on a brave face, but you really don't have much in the way of peace. With all my heart, I commend you to Christ. And keep studying and looking to and calling upon Christ. You will find Him to grant peace to your soul. But as I say, they not only forfeited peace, but sight. Now they are hid from thine eyes. Judicial blindness is their portion. Oh, there'll be individuals saved, praise God. But there is a judicial blindness that's coming over the city, coming over the nation. The prophets will deal, or rather the apostles will deal with this in various portions, especially in Romans. They're under blindness, judgment from God. They cross the line, as we considered this morning. How much money would it take to buy your eyes from you? You wouldn't give them up for anything. What the Lord is saying here is that He is removing from them the ability to see. Oh, you can have the oracles of God, but you need to be able to see. You can have all the history and legacy, but you need to be able to see. So he weeps over their rejection of the truth. And he weeps over their desolation in the future. Verse 43 and 44 tell us, For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, surround you, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. 
Note the certainty of this desolation. The days shall come. They shall come. No one would believe it for a moment. Oh, they had, they had a history. They had a history of, of enemies coming in and being driven into captivity. It's not, it's not like they had escaped all forms of judgment in their past, but we have, <laughs> we have a recency bias, don't we? That no matter what has happened in the past, there's this little voice in us that says it won't happen in our day. You know, like you can see the Great Depression and the stock market crash entirely and the whole thing fold in and you say, well, it happened then. Of all sorts of measures in place so that that would never happen like that again, that being the key. It might not happen like that again, but it doesn't stop it from happening. It can happen. And in part, we kind of know that, but we never imagine it will be in our day. Recency bias. But Christ speaks with prophetic certainty. The days shall come upon thee. And it wasn't but a generation away. AD 70. When this city was to experience the fulfillment of Christ's words here. Around the same time of the year. Three days before Passover. Titus given charge by his emperor father to go in to quell the Jewish revolt and to spare no one. Spare no one, Titus. Men, women, children. And they besieged the city and they overcame its stand. And the Roman army went in there and they slaughtered everyone. 1.1 million Jews. In a day where you don't have that many people in many parts of the world in one place. This is a very unusual arrangement. Agrarian cultures, little towns, a few hundred here, a few hundred there. 1.1 million people slaughtered, men, women, children. The city was flattened. The temple was burned. And there was nothing. Nothing. So you not only have the certainty of it, you have the carnage of it. Christ gives a little insight into what I've just explained. Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. Speaking to Jerusalem like she's a mother. It's not just talking about children in terms of age. It's referring to all within her walls, all men, women, and children, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Total carnage happened exactly as the Lord said. 
utter devastation. Why? Why? Because they refuse to acknowledge God's visitation in the person of his son. Now you are not Jerusalem. These words in their specificity won't be or can't be applied to you. But as we saw this morning, when you repeatedly reject the truth, move away from the truth, despise the truth, make light of the truth, become impenitent in heart, Again, the New Testament has these passages, doesn't it? Individuals like those in Corinth. The Lord deals with them individually. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You reap what you sow. When you spend your time in things that bring down the displeasure of God, you invite his judgment. While, again, you're not a city, there can be total carnage in your life. Beloved, I say these things not to make out that God is anything but loving. He is loving beyond, we sang about it, the deep, deep love of Jesus. We sang about the Father's love as well. But let not that truth of divine love undermine the reality of divine judgment. On the one hand, you have here Christ sobbing, weeping, heart broken. But that heart that bleeds with passion for men does not minimize or eradicate or remove the judgment of God that must come. If you love your family, if you love your family, stay close to God. If you love your family, the best thing you can do is stay Close to God. You can't protect them all the time. You don't have the power. So, we have his tears. We have also... His truthfulness. His truthfulness. Verses 45 and 46. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Two things here regarding Christ's truthfulness. 
His zeal for truth moved him to take action. His zeal for truth moved him to take action. I use the word zeal deliberately because that's what's said when this happens the first time in John 2. As he observed the first cleansing of the temple, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The Lord Jesus moved. That was also in this area. Once again, he is in the temple dealing with the same thing. It's a time of Passover, once again. One of those occasions in which Jewish men, if they were able, would, would traverse all the way to Jerusalem. So the place is heaving with people. Animals were required for the feast. But many would come for hundreds of miles. They couldn't bring their animals with them, so they would, they would come and have to acquire those animals when they arrived in the city. And so, of course, there's no problem with that. There's no issue with that. At the same time, they also had to pay a temple tax. It was annually needed and due. And so, at the time of Passover, that was the allotted time that men would pay their half shekel. But in doing so, they would carry with them sometimes currency, but it was not the same as what was used in Jerusalem. And so they knew that the money changed. And so you have these money changers who are there, again, providing a service, just like the ones with the animals are providing a service so that you can sacrifice unto God. There's others providing a service so that you can change your money and give your temple tax. There's nothing wrong with any of this, in one sense. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a practical aspect of the circumstances they find themselves in. People living miles and miles away in other regions and areas, and they need to come, they need animals, they need money changed, and so on. Nothing wrong with it. And while there was extortion with it, for sure, it's not even the extortion that's bothering the Lord Jesus. Look at it. Verse 45 he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer. Ye have made it a den of thieves. It's not what you're doing. It's where you're doing it. It's where you're doing it. How dare you? You take a segment, oh, and how particular they were, about taking the court of the Gentiles, that area that wasn't really so much for the Jews. It was for them, of course, but it formed more of an outreach ministry towards others, a place where those who, who couldn't enter into the temple could observe what was going on and see something of the life of the temple. Instead of that ministry being there, instead of using that in a way that might have been edifying and helpful to people, they just they take it over, fill it with animals and money changers, to provide the need for the Passover. And the Lord is, is overwhelmed with a sense. His heart is moved with zeal at the wrongness of what's going on. So he takes action. He began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. Drives them out. If you have a view that Jesus is the quintessential nice man, <laughs> Be careful how you define nice. Never let truth be subservient to some cultural 
idea of what you should be like. Truth is paramount. Truth is paramount. In terms of our objective in life, in terms of faithfulness to God, it is truth, it is peace. And I put peace below it because sometimes you have to actually not work for peace because truth is at stake. That's what you have here. Oh, most churches wouldn't know how to categorize this kind of Jesus. doesn't fit the view. Some have condemned him. The liberals say he, he lost it here. Such people don't know God. They don't know God. They don't know what it is to have zeal burn in the soul, a fire for truth and the honor of God. They don't understand it. I was just reading it with the family the other day about Proverbs 25 about the, the look of, I can't remember how it says, about the look of anger driving away the backbiter. And I thought, you know, there's a place for an angry look. There's a place for an angry look. Our Lord Jesus used it. What he was angry about is how this commotion, this enterprise, this economic endeavor was veiling what should really be happening in the temple. So he goes in and drives them all out. You know, when you think about gentleness, when you, when you have a, a view of what it is to be gentle, remember that let me illustrate it this way. It's not surprising that a man who can't fight doesn't fight. It's not a surprise. He doesn't have the capability. What you have here is someone who can floor an army with a word, as he will do in just a few days. He will floor hundreds of men with a word. That's the degree of power. He can still a storm with an utterance. His gentleness then is amazing in light of what he can do. And the restraint even that you see here is restraint. You might think it seems so unkind, so unchristian. This is great restraint. His zeal for truth moved him to take action. Also, his zeal for truth moved him to speak words, verse 46, saying unto them. He doesn't leave them in ignorance. He doesn't just drive them out like a crazy man. He quotes Scripture. He gives them the word. 
It is written, my house is a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. Mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. And then he takes the language of Jeremiah 7, 11, which says, Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. And so he takes that text, he utilizes it to be applicable here. You have made it a den of thieves. A place where the souls of men should be prayed for. Again, this is the heart of Christ. It's the heart of Christ for sinners. What should be happening in that place? Prayer and intercession for the nations. Worship to the true and living God. An expression to a world watching on of what genuine worship is all about. So that people could come through these seasons of great activity where people travel, like you have in Thanksgiving, where people take flight and move across the nation to go and spend a few days with their family. This is the ancient form of it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming into Jerusalem, some of them to participate, some of them just to see what's going on. And in this place, there should be prayer. People should come in and see these people have a burden for all nations. They're not so proud to think that they're the only ones. They have a heart for all nations. They want all peoples to be saved. And so Christ's expression here of anger and driving these people out and calling it out for what it was shows His heart for men. Intercede for men. Pray for men. Don't you realize what's at the door? If ever this city needed to pray, it is now. You're about to crucify the Son of God. Instead, you're turning the house of God into a place of commerce that could be done anywhere else. It could be done anywhere else. You choose to do it here. It's a sign of your spiritual life, or rather, the lack of it. Oh, beloved, you see this? The love of Christ, His heart and His truthfulness is coming out in passion, yes, zeal. But zeal that, that is for the benefit of men. And finally, we have His temerity. His temerity, verse 47 and 48 taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. We'll not read into the next chapter, but these two verses function as a summary of about, like, what's about to happen here. This is the Lord Jesus, Lucas saying, this is his practice over these days leading up to the cross. He goes into the temple to teach and there's great desire to destroy him. One of those days gets pointed out as you come to Luke 20, verse 1, that came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple, we have a little more insight into what occurred. But the Lord Jesus then, he teaches daily. He's come to Jerusalem to teach. He's come to bring, he's come to bring the presence of God. He's come to bring the Word of God into that temple before it is destroyed. And again, this is, a, this is a sign of his heart. 
His heart for sinners. Constantly preaching and teaching. Listen, beloved. Let it never be forgotten. A love for humanity begins with teaching and preaching the gospel. I am for the abolition of abortion. And if you can be involved in that and help aid it, go on. You can do it for the honor of God. It is right. It is good. I am for bringing justice to what's happening and continues to occur in terms of human trafficking. I am for it. Go. Expose it. Make those in leadership aware of the prevalence of it. I am for it. But a heart for humanity begins with the preaching of Christ. It begins with the gospel. Our Lord Jesus could end all injustice. He could silence any opposition. He could remove all enemies. And yet He comes to preach and to teach the gospel. That's His heart for sinners. And we should follow suit. Yes, there's an aspect of social justice. It cannot be. We become impotent in our world if we ignore the social aspect of what we're called to do and be. The prophetic voice to give moral compass to those in leadership and even to our neighbors. We are called to that. But first, the gospel. First, the gospel. Let it always be the pinnacle. He taught daily in the temple. He comes to open up the Word, to teach the souls of men. His heart is for sinners. In the midst of a city upon which the judgment of God is looming, He comes to teach. Maybe some will respond. Maybe one or two will be saved. Maybe a few families will be radically transformed. Teach daily. But I say temerity, why? Because he did it in the face of his enemies. Why? Because he has a heart for sinners. He's preaching to the needy souls in the temple, the people who have gathered for this occasion. He's preaching while in the outskirts of the temple, around the circumference of the area, there's all sorts of whispers and discussion about how to bring him down. And he's not ignorant of it. He knows what's going on. He discerns. He sees the muttering. He's well aware of the kind of wave of whispering among the leadership. Look, look, three types of leaders are mentioned here. Chief priests, scribes, the chief of the people, the heads of the location of the region, the fathers of the place. They're all involved. They're all muttering. They're all conniving. They're trying to find a way to destroy him. As I said, it's part of Christ arousing the interest as He came into Jerusalem of courting that in a certain fashion which caused people to be taken with Him and they're literally so pressing upon Him and hanging upon Him they can't get any space to deal with Him. The crowd are so pressed upon Him. You know, when your life's under threat, you might say to yourself, is it worth sacrificing my life to get the gospel to a perishing soul? I mean, that was the discussion between Knox 
and his mentor. He knew he was going out that day to die. He knew it. And on every other occasion, Knox would, would go with him with his sword and be his bodyguard and security. That day when he knew, he urged upon Knox, stay here. He went and died. He was captured. It all came exactly as he knew it was going to occur. Knox stayed. Of course, had a radical impact upon not just Scotland, but far beyond. That kind of courage to go to your death for the sake of the gospel. Christ exhibits here. Oh, Christian, do you see the heart of Christ for sinners in this passage? Do you? What does Greenville need? What does your family need more than anything? It needs your tears. Greenville doesn't so much need an increase of taxation so that they can accomplish their projects. Greenville doesn't need more of this or more of that, more than the other. It, it needs tears. Tears. And if we have the heart of Christ, truly, and this shows how far short we are in our likeness to our God, if we have the heart of Christ Frequent will be the tears we shed for our city. And frequent will be the tears we shed for our family. Frequent will be the tears we shed for wayward believers. A heart for people. And we will be truthful when we must be if we are to be like Christ. Filled with a sense of zeal for truth, we will speak that truth by God's grace. And we will be courageous, show temerity, even at times when we're worried about what someone might do to us or what we might lose in being faithful. But our love for God and our love for men will move us and we will leave the consequences to God. You look at some that you love. You wonder if they can ever be saved. As we said this morning, as a city... Jerusalem crossed the line. Judgment was coming. But individuals in that city were going to be saved. In fact, multitudes, when you read the account of Acts, multitudes were converted. Not just the day of Pentecost, where there were people from all over the world, but even afterwards, multitudes. The Lord had mercy on them. Do not think your Savior to be an unkind or 
unmoved. Redeemer, he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he sobs over sinners. May the Lord help us to sob and have a heart for sinners like Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. As our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed before the Lord, there may be one or two here. And before you sob for anyone else, you need to sob for yourself. Maybe there's a Christian here who has let sin run rampant. It's dominating your life. It's controlling your thoughts. It's drawing you away from God. You know, if you're a true Christian, then you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Go into your life like the Lord Jesus Christ and drive out what doesn't belong. Drive it out with the same zeal of Christ. But if you're not saved... It's time you wept for yourself. That you wept over your unbelief. You wept over your sin. You wept over your hard heart. You wept over your worldly passions and lusts. You wept over your running roughshod over the privileges you have and have had perhaps since your youth. It is time to seek the Lord. If we can be of help to you, please seek us out. God bless thy word. Help us, help us to have a heart for sinners like our Lord Jesus that will move us to weep, that will move us to be truthful, that will move us to be courageous even in difficult days. Because men must hear the truth. And give to us as a church, fashion us as a people, real passion. But never let us compromise the truth. May we drive out the unclean in our midst, and especially in our own hearts. And may we truly be a house of prayer. Hear our prayers then. Bless our fellowship. Be in the midst of all our conversations, of our greetings and our goodbyes. And walk with us through this week ahead. Fill us with the Spirit of God. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Mm-hmm.